Well, please be seated. I'm glad to be here. I hit, I got hit by some terrible, I don't know what it was. It's like a, some sort of infection hit me Saturday night. I thought, I thought yesterday I was dying. <laughs> and I almost phoned Buddy, but then I thought, no, I better fight it. So I'm a little better today, but still fighting. Amen? Well, let's go to, just go to the end of the Old Testament, the last two verses of Scripture in the Old Testament, that is. Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. I'm not going to develop this, but would you agree that a nation that loses its fathers is a cursed nation? And it, I, again, I'm not going to develop this, but I could show you by many scriptural things, how it's not a person, but the spirit of Elijah is being let loose into the church. The things that John, John the Baptist, uh, father prophesied, the things that the archangel Gabriel prophesied, they're being fulfilled through this move of God that's touching the church right now. And I'm here, and I want to focus on one of those things, which is the dimension of fatherhood. Now, after, after these words were spoken, there was a, a prophetic silence for 430 years. God said nothing more, and then just before the Lord Jesus was born, and Gabriel was sent, first of all, to Zacharias, and then to Mary, the first thing that was said was to pick up this prophecy again. I think you must agree with me that that must be really important. Amen? And if you go to Luke 1.17, you'll find that the same thing said there. And the promise is that there will be a restoration of fatherhood and there will be a mending of the generation gap. And we've got to believe God for that. Then in Matthew 11, when Jesus is giving testimony to the life of John the Baptist, he refers obliquely to this same thing again. I'm just saying this quickly because I haven't got time to develop it all. Is that okay? Then you come to Matthew 17. Jesus is walking down from the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples ask him about Elijah. And by this time, John the Baptist has been beheaded. He's completed his course. And then in verse 11, Jesus says that Elijah is coming, future tense, and he will restore all things. And then in verse 12, he says he has already come. And that, of course, was in the person of John the Baptist. So there's a way in which that prophecy was fulfilled in John the Baptist. There's a way in which it's going to be fulfilled in a greater worldwide manifestation of the Elijah ministry. And that's what I see happening right now. That's why it's absolutely on target. And so I want to talk to you about this subject of fathering. We're going to, over these three days, we're going to look at it, first of all, in its more narrow sense of the natural family. But I want to apply it much wider to the sense of the church, and also in the sense of society. You know, there's a great lack of leaders in the nation, and the same reason is because we've lost our ability to father. 
Amen? And so, so society is sick through lack of fathering. The church isn't what it should be. And one of the reasons is the absence of fathers. And certainly in the natural family, we're in a desperate state because of the loss of fathering. I just give a little personal testimony that uh, after I'd been back in England, having lived in India for years, I'd been in, uh, planting churches in Great Britain, and then God spoke to my wife and I and said that I'm going to change your ministry. You're going to, you just need to start withdrawing from the churches that you've planted here and establish other leaders because you're on the move. And it was uh, over a period of two years that we did that. I didn't know where I was going. And what I thought might happen was that I might go into the center of London and, and really blast a hole in the center of London. That's what was my ambition. I have a great heart for London. And I never at that time ever visited the United States. I'd come for a couple of occasions for ministry, but I never felt this was part of my scene. And I had a visit from some pastors who, unknown to me, were looking for a spiritual father. And they had a list of leaders that they wanted to, in, to meet. And they met me and talked to me and invited me to visit their church. And I wasn't all that madly keen, but I, I liked them very much. I thought, well, sometime I'll visit them. And I was on my way back from New Zealand where I had been visiting and I went for several years in the, in the connection of, of planting uh, Bible colleges around the Pacific Rim. And I, was, and, and I was traveling back from New Zealand, and I stopped off in San Antonio, which was, the, which was the church. It was Eagle's Nest, where I presently am. And I agreed to just spend a few days there as I happened to be passing through. And when I got into my hotel room and was praying for that first Thursday night meeting, I had one of my most remarkable visitations of God that I've ever had. God just came into my room, filled the room with his glory, and I didn't know whether I was in heaven or on earth for about two hours, and I didn't much care. There was just this glorious presence of God, and it was in that setting that God spoke to me. And he said, this is going to become your home. And I'm calling you to the United States of America to be a father. There's a dearth of fathers, and I want you to teach men how to be fathers as well as to be a father. And he said, this is part of the preparation that I'm making for this mighty revival that's going to sweep through the land. And so that's why I'm here. I'm not here because I need to be. I'm here because I have a divine mandate to be here. And I, I, the Lord told me not to start anything. He said, don't set any, up your own organization. He said, you're not to lead anything. You're not to manage anything. You're to be available to men in order to father them and then teach them how to father others. And it's a, it's a thrilling ministry that God's brought me into. And so I am speaking from a measure of, of experience. I wasn't the best of fathers, naturally. I didn't read Dr. Dobson until I was 50 years of age. <laughs> and it was a bit late then. So I've made most of the mistakes that you can make. But I've learned that if you are honest and transparent with your kids, they'll forgive you an awful lot. Amen? So we're going to be talking about that over these next three mornings. Ladies, I don't want you to feel excluded because I'm going to be... I tell you, if you get your men right, life's a lot better for you. <laughs> Amen? So let's get into our subject now. And I'm just going to run through these notes which I think you've got. 
And the first point that I want to make is that all that's feminine and all that's masculine obviously has its origin in God. We're not talking about God being male, that's ridiculous. All that's beautifully feminine comes from God and yet he has chosen to reveal himself in terms of fatherhood. He speaks of himself as a father and he, at the heart of his being, there's this, this desire for fatherhood to be the foundation of everything. And when Abraham was called, he, he was called to father a multitude. That's Genesis 17.5. He's known as exalted father. That's what the name Abraham means. And then when it was changed to Abraham, it means father of a multitude. It says in Genesis 17.5 that he was to be the father of many nations. In Romans 4.11, it says that he's the father of all that believe, whether it's Jew or Gentile. And then, of course, we now see the Lord Jesus Christ coming to be the leader of God's new nation, the church. And when he's presented to us in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, if you'd like to turn to that for a moment, maybe we could look at that. Read back in Isaiah 8, you read the most dreadful darkness and wickedness, and if ever it described our days, I don't know what Scripture does. And then in the middle of all that darkness, God makes the promise of a great light. And then in, in verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And so it goes on. And so Jesus, among his titles, he's got the title of Everlasting Father. And he comes as a father to father the church and to be the father of God's new nation. From these things we see that fatherhood is not confined to functioning as a natural father. In fact, I'm convinced that you cannot be a developed male without becoming a developed father. Jesus never was a natural father, but he was a great father. The Apostle Paul never, ever married and had a family, but he was a father of men and he was a father of churches. In fact, I'm convinced that if you wait to get married to learn how to father, well, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It's like sort of, imagine this is the way that they train pilots going to a local airport and hiring a plane and getting in the plane and taking off. And then when you've taken off, you say, well, how do I fly this thing? And you get, you get the manual out, and here you are sort of trying to keep the plane from crashing while you, you quickly read the manual to see how to keep from crashing. Now, that's how most men go into marriage. It's true. Haven't got a clue how to be a husband or how to be a father. They fall in love, get married, and they say, how do I fly this thing? And no. <laughs> now, I think you would agree with me, if we train pilots this way, we'd have a lot of fertilities. Not many men would learn to fly successfully. Most of them would crash. Amen? 
And that's why we have so many fertilities and terrible crashes in marriage because it's something that we leave it till it's too late to learn how to do it. I've often asked this question, do you think that a leader of a church or an elder has to be married? And I say, well, it's not a matter of whether he's married or not, it's whether he's a father or not. Because a man can have all the attributes of fatherhood and yet not be married. And I know that if, if and when he gets married, he's going to be successful. Other men are kids who just got married. And the wife finds that she, he's the biggest kid in, in the family. Amen? He just hasn't grown up at all. And, and she's trying to look after this big kid and all the little kids at the same time. And he's harder to manage than the little kids because he thinks he's someone when he ain't anything. <laughs> Would you agree with that? So there's a, there's a desperate need to come to real fatherhood. Let me say one more thing here. This is just sort of some of the introduction of this. Is in modern sort of politically correct language, there's a lot of talking about parenting. And you sort of get the idea that parenting isn't a matter of gender, it's just a matter of, of a grown-up looking after children. The Bible doesn't talk about parenting, it talks about fathering, and of course it talks about mothering. They are different roles. They're not the same. I, I've lost the reference for this, and if anybody happened to read this same article, I'd appreciate you giving me the reference. But I, about a, a year or so ago, I read an article... I think it was in Time magazine. I've, I've called them and I can't trace it. But I read this article somewhere. And it was a report of a social study which was made by a secular social services in the United States. And they had tracked the life of 300 children from, the, from birth to the age of 25. And all these children had a single parent. And it was equally divided between father and mother, and it was equally divided between boys and girls. And they traced them through 25 years. And at the end of these 25 years, they began to find out what happened to these kids, and they, they discovered some remarkable things. They first of all found that, it, that those who only, in both cases it was a caring parent, they found that those who only had a father did three to seven times better than those that only had a mother. And, they, and I've I, I mentioned some things here. They found that in terms of worth and value, let me just read it here. They had, the children who had a father but no mother, whether it was a boy or a girl, fared much better than those who only had a mother. They had a greater sense of identity, they had a greater sense of self-worth, a greater sense of self-confidence, they had more self-discipline and sense of purpose in life. They had a greater sense of responsibility, a greater respect for authority, and got into far less trouble with the police than those who only had a mother. Now, obviously, to lack a mother meant they had lacks in, in other ways. But the point I'm making is not which is better, mother or father. I'm saying both are essential. Parenting is not enough. Children need fathering and mothering, and we each have our unique role to play, and they're not interchangeable. 
Mothers cannot give to children what fathers can give, and fathers cannot give to children what mothers can give, and God's designed the family for both to be functioning. It's just as bad for the mother to go out to work all the time and just leave the kids with some childminder. I mean, these things are devastating our society. If we find ourselves in this unhappy situation, we need to call on God for special grace. We need to recognize the size of the problem that we're having to deal with. You see, I was an Eli type of person. I mean, when I got saved, I hadn't got any children before I got saved, and I lived in my little spiritual world and left Eileen, my wife, to to bring up the kids. And she found that that, that whatever she tried to put the kids with, they would just copy my example, whatever it was. And my sort of indifferent distance had more influence over them than her detailed input. If I walked in the house with dirty shoes on, my kids would, however much she told them not to do it. And we got to almost a, a breakdown point in our marriage. And, to, and, and this is when the alarm bells went off. Without reading Dr. Dobson, I realized something had got to happen. <laughs> I realized I was ri- ruining my kids by just being so spiritual, I wasn't really giving them the time that they needed. And, uh, and I quickly did all I could to make repair for the years of neglect for which I was personally responsible with my kids. We had a particularly difficult time because my children went to boarding school. We were missionaries in India, and there were scars on them for those years of boarding school. It's taken a long time to repair the damage, but God's able to repair the damage. It's never too late. Amen? It's never too late. Fatherhood is more than bringing up a few children. It's not confined to functioning as a natural father to some children. God has called men to have the attributes of fatherhood, whether they are married or not. Amen? That's what we've got to see here. And if we can, if we can recognize that and seek it, then God's going to show us how to become great fathers. The natural family needs them. The church needs them and society needs them. For this very reason, Satan hates fatherhood. You've got to recognize there's been a systematic assault upon the family, on our nation, since the beginning of this century, I would imagine. Particularly intensified since the end of the Second World War. The the Second World War was devastating on family life. It was in Britain, and and it certainly, from all I can learn, it's been equally true in the United States. And if you ever look at these sort of soap television programs, have you ever noticed that, that whenever a father is portrayed, he's always some bungling idiot that can't make any decisions, He's the, he's the fool of the family. Can you see how, how disparaging the whole thing is on fatherhood? And it's usually a much more capable mother that rescues the situation again and again and again. Now, that's a satanic attack upon the family. And if you constantly watch that stuff, then you get the wrong sort of norms for what a family is supposed to be. We shouldn't let our kids, and we ourselves shouldn't feed on that sort of stuff. He hates fatherhood. And for that very reason, he's attacked the clear role of father and has tried to destroy it 
in various societies in one of two ways. First of all, by making it weak and despised. That's the particular problem we have in the United States. When men began to get rightly guilty over the way they treated women, the devil pushed the pendulum too far the other way. And we have rampant feminism, feminism going way beyond the point of biblical reason to the point now where men are afraid to be fathers and afraid to function in their God-given headship in home or in society. Would you agree with that? I hope you do. Now, if you know me, I'm not against women having full function in church and in public life, but there's a call of God upon men which only men can fulfill. We mustn't be afraid to say that. What men have got to do is to learn, and I always put these three words together, we have to learn how to be father-servant heads. And you can't separate one word from the other. We're called to be fathers, we're called to be heads of that which we father, and we're called to be servants in the way that we function as a father head. There's nothing chauvinistic, there's nothing dominating about it. But we can't abdicate our responsibility either. Amen? So the first attack then was upon the clear role of father, making him weak and despised, and then bringing about a matriarchal alternative with men driven out or abdicating their God-given responsibility. They just stopped functioning as fathers. And just ended up sort of drinking beer and watching television and leaving it. And it's interesting how in Roman Catholic society you find this is particularly dominant. It's amazing how matriarchal Spain is or Central and South America is. Have you ever noticed that? It's, it's the very, it seems to be the very wrong false worship of Mary brings in a kind of matriarchalness across the whole of society. So that's the attack number one, is to make motherhood so dominant that it kills fatherhood. And we need to resist that. The second way that Satan has attacked fatherhood is, in, is to make man so chauvinistic and so cruel and oppressive in his rule that he's not a father, he's just a dictator. And that's equally wrong. And there are certain societies where that's the case. I was doing some marriage seminars in Kenya recently. And as I was preparing for these seminars, I was sitting with some of the men who come from the Kikuyu tribe. And I tell you, I have never seen such conviction and such power fall upon a company as, as it did upon them. We had the men weeping with repentance and the women weeping with joy that at last the Word of God was coming into the situation. And, and one of them told me that as part of the initiation rites into the Kikuyu tribe, a, a young man is taught how to... Um, What's the, what's the word I want? How to overwhelm his wife uh, in, in, a, in a total dominating way. In other words, the first sexual intercourse, he has to prove that he's the man by basically raping her and absolutely crushing her in that first encounter. And said, so if you don't do that, you'll lose control of your family. So the men are sort of trained this way. I don't want to go into the detail, it's too revolting. In Hinduism, which of course I'm very familiar with, Hinduism teaches that the spirit of deity is only in the man. 
And the woman is created to serve the spirit of deity in the man. So you can imagine what that means. He's actually literally, theologically God, and she is just a chattel along with the cows and the other things to serve the deity in him. And so the normal culture of an Indian family without any kind of revelation is that the father and sons sit down together, the mother and the daughters wait on them when they've ate all they want and are now bloated and satisfied, then the women can come and eat what, what is ever is left over and that's how society is ordered. If he walks in the public place, she walks three paces behind him, res, you know, recognizing that he's God and she's not. When he finally dies... According to normal Hindu culture, the woman was the, the wife was thrown alive onto the funeral pyre in order to die with him, in order to serve him in the next life, because she had no reason to exist. Now that was stopped officially by the British government in 1940 something. It's called sati, but it still goes on in the villages today. But even though they don't burn the widows anymore. To be a widow is to be so disgustingly a non-person that she has to walk around in white, a white sari and, and she has no reason to exist anymore. She has no worth, she has no value, she's just a beggar, she's just dirt. I tell you, to break these vicious strongholds, is, is, it, it's, it's, it's a power that we have to break. Now we've got our own problems in American society. And God's called men to be clear, true fathers and women to be wonderful mothers and for them to work together in a right relationship. I just want to spend a few moments on this because I feel if we don't get the marriage relationship right, we're not going to get fatherhood right. If we can't get that right, we're not going to get mothers and fathers functioning properly together until we understand what the marriage relationship is. So come with me for a moment to Genesis 3.16. Genesis 3.16. I've heard this taught, and I've, probably you have, as God's biblical pattern. Are you there? To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. See, there's another problem we have in the United States, and that's what I call the legalism of Christian evangelicalism. And that's just as crushing and just as killing of any of the things that I've described in Hinduism or in Catholic societies. That is, through Scripture, we bring this sort of heavy burden upon people. This is the Scripture, brother, therefore we've got to obey the Scripture. What we've got to see here is that this is God describing the consequences of the curse. This is what's going to happen because of the fall. It never was and never is God's best order. He's just warning man and woman that because they have rebelled, because sin has come into this world, there are going to be some consequences. And one of the consequences is that men and women are going to lose their proper understanding of their relationship. If you go through the New Testament, you will never find Jesus or the apostles ever referring to Genesis 3.16. If you could just come on in Genesis to Genesis 4 for a moment, just a few verses further on, 
and verse 7. The Lord says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, and you shall or you must rule over it. Now, in the Hebrew, the, the construction of Genesis 4-7 is exactly the same as the construction of Genesis 3-16. The word for desire and the word for rule are exactly the same. Please turn your cassette over it this time. In the sense of control that's being talked about here. It's not a healthy desire, it's a controlling desire. And if you don't get control of sin... Sin's going to rule over you. If, if you don't rule over sin, it's going to control you. In other words, either you get control of sin, or sin will get control of you. Now, God's now taking us back to Genesis 3.16 and saying, because of the fall, then that's how men and women are going to view their sexual differences. Either you get control of him, or he'll get control of you. Sometimes if I'm on a plane, or sitting around in a doctor's surgery, or something like that, or then I will pick up some of these women's magazines just to read them. And I tell you, if you read them, you see that we're being taught, or, or at least secular society is being taught, how to get the better, how to, get, how to be the top dog in the, the battle of the sexes. Amen? Now, what's being described in Genesis 3.16 is not biblical husband and wife relationship. It's simply what happens as a result of the fall and the battle of sexes that takes place even within secular marriage without Jesus Christ. You get control of him or he'll get control of you. And that's not godly. And we want nothing whatever to do with it. Whenever we look at Scripture in the New Testament, all that Jesus ever refers to and all that the Apostle Paul and the other writers ever referred to is, of course, Genesis 2, where God says, and the two shall become one flesh. Or Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where it says, God created them, male and female, and he said, let them rule. So man and woman together have the government, but he has the headship of the government. They're part of, she's part of the government, but he has the headship of the government. And if you can understand that principle, you begin to learn how it works throughout all God's order. All God's society works the same way. There's a plurality of government, but there is headship, not dictatorship, within that plurality of government. It's, it's to be seen in the marriage, and of course, you see it in the Lord Jesus Christ, as the head over all things in the church. And you can find it right through every strata and facet of God's order. God's commanded men to fulfill their role. Not to be dictators, but to be, I'll put these three words together again, to be father, servant, heads. Is that okay? That's as much as I can do in the time. I hope it makes sense to you. Amen? What I like to do in, or begin to do, is now look at the qualities of fatherhood. Now, I'm looking at God, all right? 
Just come to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 15 for a moment. I just go back to verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, there's a little Greek phrase there. I'm not trying to be clever, but I just want to get to the truth, that's all. And this little phrase tells us something rather important. The phrase is pasca patria. Now, what you find is that in the Greek language, in the Bible Greek, there is no separate word for father and there's no separate word for family. It's the same word. Isn't that interesting? So what God's really saying is that a family is a fatherhood. God can't conceive of a family without a father. It's just inconceivable to him. A family is a fatherhood. A fatherhood is a family. And Paul's saying, I bow my knees to the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth derives its name. That's what he's literally saying. Or if you like, the whole family. All that is the family of God is the fatherhood of God. Amen? And if you have a leadership, you're going to have to learn to be like God, which means you're going to have to learn to be a father in your leadership. I say this again and again when I'm teaching leadership seminars. You cannot head up what you will not father. And you cannot lead what you will not pastor. Now, you may not be called to be a pastor in the church, but you are called to pastor the leaders that God's given you. And you all are called to be a father of that which he's called you to head up. If we can get that truth into our spirit, then we're going to change some of the corporate image of some of our churches. They're not corporate companies, they're family. Amen? And families need fathers, and God, God's whole order runs on fatherhood. The whole family of God is the fatherhood of God, and any subdivision of it will carry the same genes of fatherhood right through the whole thing. Is that okay? If you come to John chapter 16... In, the great upper, in this great discourse called the Upper Room Discourse from John 13 through John 17, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, I forget how many times, it's, it's dozens of times, I better not quote the figure because I can't remember, but he's, his constant theme is the Holy Spirit. He's saying in that day, the day when the Spirit think comes, everything's going to be different because now the Spirit will come within you and within you he's going to be able to teach you things which I, even I, Jesus, could not teach you by mouth-to-mouth, head-to-head communication. You're going to have spiritual things revealed in your spirit by God's Holy Spirit. You're going to become a spiritual man that can receive spiritual things. Amen? In that passage of Scripture, the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus speaks about father and fathering more than 60 times. You read it through. It comes again and again and again and again. Now, here in John 16, 25, we come to the nub of the thing. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language 
but I will tell you or I will show you plainly about the Father. In that name, you will ask in my name, and I don't say that I shall pray the Father for you. The great heart longing of Jesus is that there might come a revelation of the Father. He said, I've told you about the Father, but he said it's an altogether different thing to have the Spirit come and show you the Father. And I'm praying over these days that that's going to be our experience. Because the only way to father is to learn it from the great father. And one of the great reasons why the Holy Spirit has been sent is to show us the father. Jesus said that. When he comes, he's going to show you the father. It's not enough to learn fathering principles. It's, 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 you've got to get the passion of God's heart for fathering into your spirit. And that's a spiritual revelation. And I tell you, the church of Jesus Christ in America is crying out for fathers. Paul said, you've got many teachers, but you don't have many fathers. It's not more clever teachers. It, it's that father spirit, and that father heart that we're desperately crying out for. And that only comes from knowing the father. You can't become a father without knowing the father. And so I want to look at this, but as I look at these things, I don't want you to get condemned and say, well, I'm not very good there, and I'm not very good there. You're probably lousy on all these things. <laughs> don't get condemned. Secondly, don't try and improve. Otherwise, you get into law. Recognize that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of fatherhood. When he comes into our heart, he doesn't cry organization and method. He cries, Abba, Father. Amen? That's what my Bible says. He cries, Abba, Father. By very nature, he's a father, and he knows how to impart fatherhood to us. I mean, I was the lousiest fathers, naturally. But I'm not like that now. And I didn't go on lots of courses and try and change myself, I just drank in the Spirit of God. I just imbibed the Spirit of the Father, and I'm becoming more and more like the Father all the time. So let, let all these become promises to you. Amen? You can become like this, because He is like this. And who He is will be poured into you by God the Holy Spirit. Is that okay? I'm just looking at the time, wondering whether I should stop now and continue tomorrow. What do you think? We've got about 10 minutes, that's all right. all right. Let's look at some of them. You've got them in your notes, I think. Number one is the burden bearer. Shouldering responsibilities, faithful and dependable, quitting is not an option because it's never in the heart of God. Wouldn't you love to have a dad like that? The tragedy is in so many, many families, dads run out on the family. That never happens if you've got the Spirit of the Father in you. It says in 1 Timothy 2.13, Although we are faithless, yet he abides faithful. He cannot deny himself. God never quits. Amen? So a true father never quits. Is that okay? Number two, he's the stabilizer. Like our Father God, men are called to be dependable, immovable, stable and secure, with no shadow of turning. Not to panic. Say, oh, don't worry, I've got it. I mean, can you imagine yourself like that? You've got to start to think of yourself like that. 
just calm, Mr. I'm immovable rock. It says in James 1, chapter 7, it says that, that all good gifts come down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of turning. He's that dependable rock, that immovable rock, where everything's, well, well we feel so secure because we know this guy isn't just a, isn't a flake. Do you use that term? He's not just some shaky thing. He's, a, he's an immovable rock. Amen. Number three, wise, or if you like, wisdom. This wisdom comes down from the Father of lights who gives it liberally. All we have to do is to ask in faith without doubting, according to James 1.5. Amen? And the wisdom that comes down from above is very different to carnal, natural wisdom. Let's just look at those verses for a moment. Come to James. Chapter 3. We'll just read this and then we'll close because I'm supposed to be finished. All right? And we can carry on tomorrow. That's the nice thought, isn't it? James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Notice that phrase there. Godly wisdom isn't arrogant, it's meek. It's in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, it's sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So if you're trying to be clever to get to the top, then that's not godly wisdom, that's devilish. Listen, it's either one or the other. And if you look at the church of Jesus Christ in America, we have to recognize there's a lot of competitive cleverness. People maneuvering for a position, getting to know the right people, because they want to promote their ministry and they want to promote themselves. Would you agree with me? Now, the Bible says that's devilish. That's what the Bible says. And I don't want to be devilish and successful or apparently successful. Do you? We want to have the true wisdom. So let's read on the true wisdom. Verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure. It's first of all pure. Then it's peaceable. And I wish I could talk about peace because that's a great subject in itself. It's pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's willing to yield, it's full of mercy, it's full of good fruits, it's without wavering or without partiality, and it's without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do the wars and fights come from among you? The answer is because of the wrong wisdom. Amen? If you've got the kind of staff that are always at each other's throats, you better ask whether you've got the right kind of wisdom flowing. Because if you've got the right wisdom, it's sown in peace by those who make peace, and it's peaceable. And 
true fatherhood has a great anointing of God's wisdom upon it. That's probably what marks it out more than anything else. But it's that, it's that right kind of wisdom. It doesn't seek its own. It's not puffed up. But it's got that godly insight into things. Amen? Well, I'm going to stop there, and we carry straight on on that list tomorrow morning. God bless you, and uh, it's been great to be with you again. Amen. I was beginning to set out for you the qualities of fatherhood, and I said this is not a condemnation list, it's a promise list. That everything that God says you're supposed to be, you can be, through grace. Amen? doesn't matter what sort of mess your own father made of your upbringing. It doesn't matter what sort of mess you've made of yourself. There is redemption in Jesus Christ. Amen? He's able to save to the uttermost those that come to God through him. So we can look at these things and say, God, I believe by your grace you can turn me from what I am into what I'm supposed to be. And if America can bring forth a, a new generation of fathers that's going to change America and I believe touch the world. Amen? I believe it's that important. You don't seem very excited this morning. <laughs> Amen? Can't you see a father-filled America blessing the world? I can see it. I really can see it. And instead of every city being a disaster, it'll be a place of glory and light. Come on, let's believe for these things. The key to so much of this is godly fatherhood. It's the biggest disease in our nation, and God's about the business of curing it. Amen? Okay, let's move on. I, meant, I got as far as yesterday as talking about wisdom, and I wanted to move on and, and say that the Bible says that a father is a provider. It says in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if a man does not provide for his own, and especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an infidel. That's pretty strong language. It's better to rob a bank than to deny your own family. That's what it's saying. I mean, it's worse. And uh, that can be applied to not only the financial side, but it applies to what a family has a right to in terms of time and of love and of all the other things that the father's supposed to give. Security, and if a man's so busy in his secular work or so busy in his ministry that he denies his own, and especially his own household, the Bible says he's denied the faith however good a preacher he is. However good his diary is, he's an infidel as far as God's concerned. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? But that's what my Bible says. Does your Bible say that? Just a few months ago, I was helping a church in America and I was interviewing two men who were very able men who were being asked to come into some kind of role in the church, an eldership role. Both of them, strangely enough, were both of them cardiac surgeons. They were both very successful. And as I talked to one of them, he told me that he worked for this particular uh, outfit in town. It was, it was a, a, a town that was well known for its cardiac surgery, and people were coming from all over the nation to get treated in this particular hospital. He was part of the team that was doing all these operations and he was getting a phenomenal salary. I think he was being paid about $500 an hour to do these operations. It was something incredible. And, and he was working 16 to 20 hours a day because he was with this team that were absolutely bent on making money. 
he was a lovely young man and uh, so loved Jesus, but he was, he was in a physical, a physical sense of stress. He was a doctor and I was telling him, you better take care of yourself. <laughs> and I confronted him that he got his priorities wrong. I said, what's the point of being so successful? He said, well, I'm going to stick this out till I'm about 40, 45, and then I can retire, and then I and my family can live on what I've made. I said, you won't have a family by then. I'm not even sure you'll be alive. And the other guy had seen this, and he had opted out of this medical rat race and had taken a job as a teaching professor in the local medical school where he had set hours and he had time for church and for family and most of all for God. He wasn't on anything like the same salary, but he was a thousand times happier than this guy who was, who was running for it. I tell you, I know which one was in the will of God. Do you? Amen? So we have to provide for our own. Now, the other side of the coin is a lazy bum who doesn't even go out and work to provide for his family. Both are equally wrong. Oh, well, we're just trusting the Lord. Come on, give me a break. You know these sort of Christian beggars? You know what I mean? God never called them to ministry, but they are trying to live off the goodness of God's people because they can't be bothered to go out and work. And if you read Scripture, you'll find that, that God, through Paul, gives us a very sharp reprimand for this sort of behavior. There's a lot of people who call themselves full-time that God never called to full-time ministry. There's a lot of churches that Jesus never planted. Probably 50% of America were never planted by God. And there's some guy just trying to milk the sheep in order to make a living because he's too lazy to go out and earn a proper living the, the normal way. Amen? Yeah. Now, if you read all Paul's exhortations to Timothy and all his writings to the church, you get the idea that if you can't discipline your life and if you're not hard-working naturally, God can't trust you with full-time ministry because it's the easiest cop-out there is. Amen? And I talk to so many pastors who've got lazy staff members who think that now they're serving the Lord, they can sit and dream or read books or listen to tapes in the company's time and they spend their days just feeding themselves. And I tell you, this folks got to go out of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Would you agree with me? I mean, I could, I could get really hot about all this stuff, but I'm just going <laughs> to drop a few things. All right? I'm, I'm going to move on because we have a lot of time. Number two, no, the next one, it's sort of number five on my list actually, is that he's a protector. It's his job to stop the devil at the door of his natural house from saying no further. See, before David ever became a king and took on Goliath, he knew how to deal with the bears and the wolves that were attacking his little group of sheep in the wilderness. Or if you like, he knew how to protect his home group before God ever gave him a big church. Hello. Can you hear me? Do you know how to behave like that? I mean, I have so many women coming to me and their fathers, uh, their husbands and the fathers of the family ought to be standing there like a priest saying, devil, you're not going to touch my kids. You're not going to touch my wife. That's one of the callings of men. It's to be a shepherd at the door of the, the, the local house sheepfold. And you better learn how to chase the devil off your back and off your wife's back and off your kid's back. Amen? I mean, the devil's attacked all our kids, but he hasn't got any of them. Amen? 
They're all serving Jesus. They married as virgins. They married one, one of them tried to marry the wrong girl and we prayed her away from him. He, the marriage or the engagement broke seven weeks before the marriage. He was heartbroken. I hugged him. Part of me was in sympathy for this broken son, but the other half was rejoicing. <laughs> I said, one day, son, you're going to thank God for this. I said, you, you, won't, you don't believe that now. As I was holding his broken because he gave himself in such loyal commitment to this girl, but I knew she wasn't the right one. But he's now married to the right one, and he's, he's now serving the living God. If, if you have a right to pray over the destiny of your kids. Every one of our kids, as they were a bump in my, my wife's womb, we laid hands on them and we said, God, these children are going to serve you. We're not bearing children for the devil. Amen? They're going to be significant. They're going to do something. And so... A father's role is to be a protector. And that, of course, extends to when you get into spiritual fatherhood. I fight for my sons in the spirit. They're my first responsibility. And it also says in Scripture that it's right for a father to provide for his children, not for children to provide for their father. You see, you can abuse apostolic ministry, you can abuse fathering to get all these guys to tithe to you because, and that's, I mean, I'm not saying that's altogether wrong. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying the attitude is that I milk all my kids so I can live flush. There's, there's something wrong about the smell of that thing. I'll lay my life down for my kids. Now, if they in return want to give into my ministry, that's great. But, but I'm not in it for that reason. Do you understand me? I, again, I've, I've said a little, and there's a danger in saying a little because you might get the wrong impression. I'm not against honoring men of God. I'm not against honoring fathers. But I'm against men just milking their kids in order to live. That's what I'm against. From my point of view, I'll lay my life down for them. From their point of view, it's right for them to honor their father. Is that okay? I hope I've said that well enough for you not to misunderstand me. Okay, let's move on. Number, the next one, number six on my list, is endorser. The one who gives worth, value, and identity to the children. This has been proven secularly that this whether you like it or not, is a role that only fathers can truly give. When, however wonderful a mother is, however much she lays down her life for the kids, if a father doesn't say you're great, you're going to make it, you're going to do something, you're going to be something, that kid is struggling with a tremendous disadvantage. I'm not saying they don't sometimes overcome it, but they, they overcome it in spite of, not because of the circumstances. But when a father's there saying, I believe in you, you're great, you're going to make it, God's got a purpose for you, there's a destiny for you, just to hear dad say that, whether it's a boy or a girl, makes all the difference to their self-worth and their ability to go out and do something. And so a father's role is to be an endorsing role. Okay, I'm not going to say any more. Next thing is that, turn to Romans 15. You don't mind if I go a bit like a machine gun, do you? not that these things are not important, but I want to cover a lot of ground. Come to Romans 15. Here's another role of a father. For whatever things are written before were written for our learning. Have you got it? Am I going too fast? Romans 15 verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. That we, through the 
I'm going to use this word, the endurance and the encouragement of scriptures might have hope. So when someone's going through a tough time, God's provided scriptures, he's provided biblical example of people who've been through the same thing. A father needs to know those things and be able to present them to his children and say, look, this is not something new. He should hopefully be able to talk out of his own life and how he handled the same thing. But one of the great uses of Scripture, which is clearly marked out here, is for people to persevere and be encouraged when they're going through a tough time. Now, it uses in the King James, I think it uses the word comfort, which is a great word, but unfortunately today, the idea of comfort has moved to something rather sloppy, which I'm not sure I really like. Oh, poor old you. It, it just ends up with unhelpful sympathy, whereas the actually, actually the word comes from the same root as the word parakletos, which is the word of the comforter who comes alongside to help. In other words, he stands beside you and says, you're going to make it. You'll be okay. You're going to get through. This is not going to overcome you. You're going to overcome it. It's got that. If it's comfort of that sort, okay. If it's a sort of lie down and die sort of comfort, I'll make your bed of death more comfortable, then that's not the kind of comfort we need. And your kids don't need that either. Amen? Now, verse 5, Now may the God of patience and encouragement grant you to be like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus. If you come to uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, Verse 3. Are you there? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. It's the same word here. The God of all encouragement. The great parakletos, if you like. The guy who says, the, the God who says, I'm going to come alongside you and you're going to make it. I'm not going to remove the trial. I'm going to make you a victor in the trial, which is much better. Amen because you're going to come out the other side more of a menace to the devil than you were before you went in. See, God isn't after producing a hospital. He's after producing an army. Hello, can you hear me? If we spend all this time ministering to hurts and wounds and get people into this kind of comfort sympathy syndrome, we're never going to take any cities for God. Now, an army needs a good medical corps. Of course it does. But for a soldier to spend all his life in hospital, he's not much good in the war. If we spent all the national defence budget on building bigger and bigger hospitals and getting more and more uh, you know, drugs and better and better surgeons so our soldiers were the fittest in the whole wide world but they never went to war, what kind of army would that be? Amen? Now we need a medical corps. But we, the purpose of the church is to become God's advancing army across the face of the earth. Amen? So he's the God, that's why I prefer to use the word encouragement because the, the idea of the word comfort in the English language has shifted a bit since the King James Version was written. It gives the wrong idea these days. Okay? So the God of all encouragement who encourages us in all our tribulations that we may be able to encourage those who are in any trouble with the encouragement by which we ourselves were encouraged by God. And how many times did you ever hear God tell you to quit? How many times did you ever hear God tell you to lie down and die? 
But how now you say, go on, you can make it, push through. You're going to see the victory. So that's part of a father's job. Now, if he's a whip, how can he encourage his kids? If he lies down and dies, if he takes three weeks off from work because he's got a headache, how is he going to bring... How's he going to produce fighting soldier kids? They're going to take the nations for God. Oh, I wouldn't go to the meeting today because I'm feeling a little bit tired. Well, you're going to put that in your kit. Amen? Amen. <laughs> All right, let's move on. I'm putting three words together here, there, and, and that I want to put them together. That's the word leader, ruler, and manager. That's the father's role. When I came home from India in the end of 1976 and started with 35 people in Great Britain, uh, it was all I had to... Britain was in a desperate state spiritually. It really was. And what I found was a bunch of praying women that had a concern and a bunch of no good men who sort of sat in the back row and never did anything. Now, I don't blame the women for taking the lead. There was, it was inevitable. And this so often happens in the home, and it often happens in the church. But as my wife, and then my wife went to the women's prayer meeting where all they did was to complain to God about these dreadful men. Well, they, well, they were dreadful, I agree. But you see, that's not the solution. Biblically, However low they've got, somehow you've got to get under them and push them up to where they ought to be. <laughs> Amen? If ever, you women, you need to confess the word over your husbands if they're in that sort of state. and Say, I, I can see you as a mighty man of God, as a mighty warrior, as a man who's going to lead this family, who's going to have an impact. I, you've got to see it in the spirit and you've got to confess it and pray it into existence. Now that's an area where women can really change things. So Eileen began to work on the women to get them to change their attitude instead of, because they were pushing the guys into a deeper and deeper hole. You're no good, you're useless, you couldn't even pray your way out of a paper bag. <laughs> Which was true, but it wasn't the time to say it. <laughs> and I got these men together and began to put some real godly manliness into them. And the, the wife of one of the ladies, came home to her husband after Eileen had been teaching and said to him, right, oh dear, I've heard the word of God, you're going to make the decisions in this house from now on and I'm going to pray for you. He turned around to her and said, you can't do that to me. He said, I haven't made a decision for 30 years. <laughs> she said, well, we're going we're to work that way from now on. Well, God began to work in that couple. He became a mighty man of God, he became a great leader. We planted him out to lead a church. The church grew from about 40 to 500 people in a short space of time. He just was transformed because his wife, and up to that time she prayed for this useless man she had as a husband. Now, by him seeing what he could be in God and her praying for that to happen, that partnership of agreement produced the reality of the thing in substance. Amen? So we need to pray. There's a great prophecy by, you may have heard of this, it was by an Armenian monk. He prophesied in 1917, just as the Russian Revolution was just beginning. And of course, he prophesied the whole Russia, the communist uprising, he prophesied it would last 
about 70 years, which it did. It went from 1919 to 1989. He said that a great world war would shake the whole, the whole world twice, which it did. He said Germany would be divided, which it was. It would be reunited just before Jesus comes, which has happened. He said Britain, Great Britain, which, which was at that time the biggest world power by a long way in 1917, he said Great Britain would lose its empire, be brought to its knees, and would be saved by praying women. He said the United States would rise to be the major world power, it would feed the world, and then it would collapse economically, but out of that mess it would come forth as the mightiest nation to bless the world, and once again, praying women were going to be a vital part in this. Now, I've got a copy of that prophecy, and I tell you, it's interesting to watch how, I mean, I don't want to put all of history on that one thing, but it's interesting to see how it's being fulfilled. God's got a great purpose for this nation. And even if we go through a, an economic hiccup, it's not the end of the world, it's the beginning of blessing. Amen? <laughs> Men are called to be leaders, they're to be out in front, they're to know where they're going. If you don't know, at least look like it. Make a decision. He said, the next thing is a decision maker. We could talk a lot of time on this. And of course, those decisions are not selfish. They are two things about them. They are servant decisions. What's best for those over whom I have father responsibility? It's servant decision making. It's not dictator decision making. And the second thing is it's consultant decision making. Now you'll find in Scripture that God gives us lots of models of how leadership teams are to be formed. They always have a clear head. You've got to have a clear head in all of God's order, but you'll find that all the leaders of Scripture were consultative. You'll find King David consulted with his captains of thousands of hundreds. He said, if it seems good to you, and if it's of the Lord, let's bring back the Ark of God. He wasn't a dictator. And he wasn't using his team to exalt himself. He was working with men in order to bring glory to the name of God and to bring the kingdom in with power. Amen? So let's get rid of the presidential image and let's start to become real kingdom churches. But that requires leadership. And it requires those who know where they're going and who can make decisions, but they do them in the right way for the right reason. Is that okay? I haven't time to spend more on that. But let me just say this, that a man must rule within the sphere of his fatherhood. It's not to control, but it's to bring clarity, it's to bring justice, so all are comfortable and positive about the decision. A great example is in Acts 15, when James, the clear head of the church in Jerusalem, brought the decision about what the Jews uh, I'm sorry, what the Gentiles should or should not do regarding the law. Now he, he consulted with all the apostles and the elders, he heard all the people, even the Pharisees had their right to speak. And when it was all said and done, he listened to God, got a word from God, heard the Holy Spirit, and then he said to them, this is my judgment. He didn't say this is our committee's decision, he said this is my judgment. He didn't say that this is my papal edict, he said this is my judgment. 
I've listened to the wisdom of God coming from all these sources. I've assembled it together as I see God directing us. And it says in Scripture, in verse 22, it was good to the apostles, it was good to the elders, and it was good to the whole church, and they all joyfully embraced it. Now, that's the right kind of leadership. Now, that's how it should work in the home. Where are we going to go on holiday this, this year, kids? Well, a selfish dad will make sure there's a good golf course. <laughs> Who cares about the kids? But he, was, he will look at the family and say, well, mum needs a rest. And so we're going to make sure she gets all she needs out of this vacation. And I'm going to make sure the kids have got what they want. And he will put himself last because that's what servant headship does. I'm here to serve the family even though I'm leading the family. And he, the kids all want to go to the beach. Mum just wants to sit in a chair and rest and read. And he'd like to play golf, but that's right at the back. And so listening to all the conflicting desires, he brings a judgment and says, kids, this is what we're going to do. After he's made the decision, he teaches them to joyfully accept it. It's not enough to grumble, to, to grumble and comply. You mustn't allow your kids to get away with that. So come on, we're going to rejoice. All right, come on, let's all be thankful. <laughs> you know, you learn quickly that attitudes are more important than actions. You know, children can rebelliously obey. And so can leaders. And it's more important to deal with the attitude than it is people can innocently disobey. And that's not serious. That's not a thing. To, you know, they can accidentally mess something up. You don't get mad about that. But if it's a really wicked attitude, then you go for it like a heat-seeking missile and say, we're going to deal with this right now. Amen? Is that Okay. So they give leadership, they give rule, they give management. All these words are used in Scripture. I really haven't time to go into them all. All right, let's move on. I think it's number nine. I may be wrong, but you, you keep a better record of it than I will. No, I think it's more than that. Let me just say this one thing. The role of fatherhood, whether it's, whether it's natural or spiritual, your role as a father and your call from God and your accountability to God is to bring forth what God uniquely created them to be. You're accountable to God for your father. Every, every injunction in Scripture for bringing up children, the responsibility is laid at the feet of the father, not the mother. Amen? Never once are women called to account for the way their kids grow up. Fathers are. Now that's something awesome that we need to grasp and we need to make sure our churches understand that. God's going to call fathers to account for what happened to their kids. And we need to make sure that we understand and have done all we can to bring our kids up into what God wanted them to be. First of all, we have to find out what they're supposed to be. Now, that's true naturally, it's true spiritually. Now, I don't want to make my kids in what I want them to be. I want them to be what God's made them to be. Now, I, I trained as a scientist. I used to be a research scientist. And I've got a brain that works that way. My daughter is exactly like me. And she was also a very successful research scientist before she went out to work in Africa for Reinhard Bonnke Ministries. She and her husband organized his crusade in Africa for years. And she's an incredible woman of God in her own right. And so is her husband, a wonderful man of God. But 
it was easy to bring her upright because we were, had such a, an empathy. But my middle son, he was totally different. He's a, an artistic, sort of architect, engineer type of guy. My youngest son, he's totally different. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's got a brilliant mind, but the last thing he wanted to do was the discipline of any science. He ended up doing, doing geography because he sort of loves the world. But when he went to London University at, at 18 years of age, in one of the most demonized situations I've ever seen in my life, he met with four other Christian believers. He said, we're going to change this college. And the five of them began to pray and minister. And at the end of three years in college, they had 150 students saved and, and organized into a powerful intercessory team that was seeing students saved every term. And he's still overseeing them like a father. Amen. He's a wonderful young man of God. He's now pastoring his own church in London. He started six months ago with 35. He said, Dad, I had the first hundred come on Sunday. So he's a great kid. He's not doing geography. He's just absolutely on fire for Jesus. I have wonderful kids, wonderful kids, wonderful daughters and sons-in-law, and I've got the most fantastic grandchildren. I'm as proud as a peacock. My, 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 I just, can I just boast a bit? My, my, my daughter, Nicola, she grew up in the intercession tent of the Reinhold Bonke Ministries. She would walk around. At, you see, you need to learn this. If you put your kids in a spiritual atmosphere, they're going to absorb it. As a kid of two, she was wandering around with her toys in an atmosphere of a thousand or two thousand Africans calling on God for their nation. She wasn't sitting watching some goofy, um, cartoons on television. Hear me. They will have their effect also. And what she was seeing and hearing, she was absorbing. I went into her bedroom when she was home on a visit from Africa when she was seven. And I found her in tears on the floor. I said, Nicola, what on earth is wrong? She said, oh, granddad, there's so many children in the world going to help. She said, I'm just crying out to God for them. I, I got down on my knees and joined her. We have a wonderful Christian school attached to our church in England and all my, my children, some of them have grown up in that school but she didn't want to stay there. She said, all the kids are saved and filled with the Spirit. She said, can I go out into the public school system? Because I want to win children for Jesus. So at 11 years of age, she's an evangelist in the local public school, winning kids for Christ. It's just in her being, it's in her spirit. We've, we've got to get that into our kids, beloved. Our job is to impart into them what they're supposed to be for God. And I say to kids, well, what God, what's God called you to be? What, what's the most wild dream you've ever had of, 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 of what, how God's going to use you? I mean, I talk to them at five and seven about these things. My son David was born congenitally deaf. He couldn't be operated on. He had a big earring aid, but at four, it was just before he was five, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit so powerfully that he was instantly and gloriously healed. Now, we've got to get our kids into these things real early. The sooner they're full of God, there's no room for the world then. Can you hear me? We don't want children's departments which entertain. We want children's departments which get them into God. 
And it's amazing what they can receive at young ages. And of course, we mustn't dump that on the staff as parents. It, the first place for them to meet God is in the home. Amen? And so our job is to, is to determine what each one individually is supposed to be. I work with dozens of churches, and some of them I don't particularly like them. <laughs> I mean, what I mean is their style. It's like going to someone's house and seeing a purple carpet, yellow walls, and a dense black ceiling, and you sort of go, eh. <laughs> but if you've been called in to deal with a crack in the foundation, the colour scheme is not your business. Amen? Now, apostolic ministry does not have a right to interfere with the house style. It's none of our business. And so, God wants to create dozens of different unique expressions of his infinitely diverse self. Amen? This multicolored God wants to be multicolored in his church and in his people. Now, I'm dealing with fundamental principles. So, I teach my kids about honor, about integrity, about handling finances, about tithing and giving. I mean, I've seen my kids at seven start sowing, I'm sure many of you have, sowing seed. And, I mean, my daughter, Nicola, had the opportunity to come to America on a visit to her grandparents or go on a three-week evangelistic mission into Czechoslovakia. If she was coming to America, she got her ticket paid for. If she was going to Czechoslovakia, she had to pray in her own ticket. And at 10 years of age, she chose to go to Czechoslovakia and go through the schools of Czechoslovakia, singing and witnessing, and seeing dozens of kids come to Jesus. And she prayed in her own airfare. Now that's the sort of kids we need to produce. Teach them how to move in faith, teach them how to give, teach them how to live in honour and integrity. And may I just say here, I think one of the biggest gods we have to fight against is the god of sport in our schools and colleges. And particularly, if you let your kid be controlled by the coach, he could pervert them into something that God does not want them to be. More important that they walk upright than they get into the top basketball team. It really is. Who cares about a, a bag of wind when Jesus comes? I mean, sport's fun, but it's not that serious. And what worries me most is this ministry, by any means we have to win, and I think the thing's so evil, I think it's absolutely demonic. And if that gets into your kids, then you're going to have an almighty job to knock it out of them. It's too big a price to pay. I mean, I've talked to parents who are now have to serve their kids four nights a week in order to stay into the basketball team because the coach is such a tyrant. He's an absolute tyrant. He's a demonized tyrant that's gripped with passion to make his team the best in the county or in the state or whatever it is. Now that's so diabolical, I don't want any part of it. I mean, sport's okay for fun, but it isn't a serious issue of life. And there's so many demons. Can you feel the demons working in that, that room? I can feel those demons working in that area. And I say, I want, it, it, to me it's worse than, it is idolatry. You might as well put a gun putty in your bedroom as worship it. That's the truth. And we've got to protect our kids. We've got to teach them to make choices. My son Duncan was a very, very good uh, racing cyclist. He, he was doing brilliantly. But when it meant he had to go on team races on a Sunday, he said, no thanks, I'm going to serve God. He said, well, you'll be out of the team. He said, God's more important than being in the team. 
He made that decision. I didn't force it on him because he'd had the right things built into him. Amen? Let's move on. Next thing I got down here is you have to be a discipler. You have to disciple your children. Basically, what discipling is, is saying to someone, follow me and I will make you like me. That's what the Bible says. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. It says that a disciple, when he's fully trained, is going to become like his teacher. Of course, it's referring to the Lord Jesus, but we are often put in the, in the chain, and the tragedy is they may become like us if we're not careful. <laughs> we need to ask this question, honestly. Do we want our kids to become like us, and would they want to become like us? And if they don't, and if we don't want them to be like us, we better change until they do. Paul said, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says what, in Philippians 4 and 9, whatever you see and hear in me, you do it and the God of peace will be with you. He's talking about the kind of behavior which makes harmony in the body of Christ. He says, you just follow me, you're going to mend relationships, you're never going to break them. Just do what I do, say what I say, think the way that I think, whatsoever things are lovely or honest or of good report, you think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's a great teaching on relationships, beloved. It's the way you and I have to talk, think, feel and behave towards other members of the body of Christ. And we've got to teach this to our kids in the natural. We've got to teach it to our kids in the spirit as well. We have to become disciples. We've got to be, if you like, a role model. It's an awesome truth that whatever we are and people will become and not what we teach them. It is a, a, a fact that an alcoholic father often produces another generation of alcoholics, however much they don't want to become them. However much they hate what they see, they somehow end up becoming like what they don't like. A violent father produces violent kids. An unclean father produces immoral children. I've seen this again and again and again. Occasionally, a child will go wrong without any apparent explanation, but usually they will become like their father, more like their father than like their mother. That's tragically true, sometimes tragically true, sometimes it's gloriously true. And we've got an awesome responsibility. So we need to be pursuing him as hard as we know how. Say, well, I'm going after Christ as best I know how because I want to be able to say, well, follow me. Now, it, it's like going from, say, Florida to Montana. Montana is the Lord Jesus and Florida is where we started. Now, in order for people to follow you, you've got to be farther along the road than they are. None of us have yet attained to the full perfection of Christ, but that's where we're heading. If I've got as far as Kansas City, I can say to everybody who's still, you know, much further south, still coming through Jacksonville, Florida, well, I can show you the road to Kansas because I've already done that bit. But by the time you get to Kansas, I better have moved on. Otherwise, you can't follow me anymore. 
You can only follow someone who's leading. And you can only lead someone if you're in front of the people who are supposed to be following you. And the tragedy is that sometimes the kids are more mature than their dad. And that creates immense problems. I'm sure you can appreciate that. Amen? Now we're... It's gone very quiet. And the purpose of all this is to gradually release them into an individual sufficiency in God. We're not attaching them to ourselves. We're releasing them into a God-dependent, self-sufficient life. Do you understand what I mean by that? So they can stand on their own feet, but by the time my kids were 14, they could handle their own finances. They were as wise as serpents, and and they knew how to make every cent count. They knew how to invest in the kingdom. They knew how to invest. My daughter was investing money when she was a student in university. She bought, and she just... Our kids have never, ever, ever run out of debt on the credit card. Never. They'd rather not eat than run themselves into debt. And so now they're, 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 see, we've taught them all the basic pillars of life. Now they can teach other people other things. Now I'm having to do that with grown men because their dads never did it for them. I'm having to teach men of 30 and 40 years old who are leading big churches, what I taught my kids when they were 14. That ought not to be so, beloved, but it is unfortunately so. Their gift is far, far bigger, and their, their fatherhood that they already have is far, far bigger than where they really are in God. And it's like a, it's like a house built on a very, very shaky foundation. If we don't get that foundation, things are going to collapse. It's like holding up an eight-story block of, of apartments while you're trying to get the foundation right and hope it won't collapse in the process. This is a lot of what is the church work that I do now because it was never built on a proper foundation. So at least we say, well, God, I will, as far as my sphere is concerned, I'm going to build on a right, right, right foundation. It's easy to build on sand. It looks impressive for a year or two until the storm comes. The guy who's digging down to hit the rock, and of course hitting the rock means you bring everybody down to Christ's likeness. He's the rock. So you've got to get to Christ's likeness in this. You've got to get to Christ's likeness in this. You've got to get to Christ's likeness until the whole of that man's life and the whole of the ministry is now upon the rock. Now it's unshakable. Amen? It won't move in the storm. It won't move in the day of trouble. But if it's built on the, on the fleshy sands of a man's best endeavour, then it could fall down any time. Amen? So now we come to the next thing, which is the father's responsibility, which is disciplining. That's a father's job, primarily. It's not a mother's job, primarily. She may have to do it sometimes, but really, that's where the dad should lift the load off her. So often this is left to the mum. It's so much more difficult for her and much harder for the children to receive it from her. Now, we could say a lot about disciplining and, and I literally could, I could take a four-hour, four, one-hour seminars on how to discipline in the natural and in the spiritual. Obviously, I have not time to do that. But let me say this, that, that love and acceptance must never, ever be in question while the discipline is in process. You've got to separate between the, the love and, and, the, and the, the 
encouragement that they are really worth something even while you're having to discipline them. You must never discipline out of anger. It's always for their good. You do it because the Spirit of God, the Father, says you're going to have to do something with my kids because all we are is we're proxy fathers for the Great Father. They're really, they're really his kids. Whether they're our natural kids or whether they're our spiritual kids, they're really his kids. And we're answering to him for how good a job we do of fathering. Amen? So you're going to have to deal with my kids. We say, okay, Lord, well, what do I say? What do I do? Well, you've got to come in the right spirit and the right attitude, but you've got to come bring them to that point of confrontation. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 for a little while, please? We could spend the rest of the day in this wonderful chapter. Hebrews chapter 12. Without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you are not sons. Furthermore, we have human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Should we not more readily be subjection to be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. What's he aiming at? That we should be partakers of his holiness. No chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, if you counter the number of times the word chastening comes there, you'll find it's about nine, ten times. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5, it uses three words which in my New King James are translated chastening, rebuke, and scourge. I want to just mention this. You see, there's three degrees of God's discipline and we need to learn them as fathers. The first one is the word chastening. And that literally means, the Greek word means to strike with the hand or with a blunt instrument for the purposes of discipline or correction. That's what it means. And that's the only way that God knows to bring children quickly into line. It's not vindictive, it's not anger, it's not venting your feelings, you are lovingly implementing the chastening of God. It needs to be an occasion, you take them, you don't humiliate them in public, you take them into your study or some private place and say, son, you know how much I love you, I love you so much, I'm going to be godly towards you. I thought it was going to fall off, okay. I can see your horror and <laughs> next minute I'll be over the top. <laughs> you know, and if you do this in the right way, all the kids that I've had to deal with, they know that what you're doing is reasonable. They say, I say, I hate doing this as much as you hate receiving it. But you see, you've violated godly principles here and I have no alternative as a loving father. I've got to do it. Bend over. Now, you don't want to injure the kid, but it does have to have, make an impression. <laughs> it's, 
it's the only God-given applied psychology that I'm aware of. And it's applied to the seat of learning. <laughs> and then you, you, they will probably quote, you hug them and say, well, I hated doing that, and, and, and it hasn't changed God's love for you, it hasn't changed my love for you, I hope I never have to do it again. Do you agree? <laughs> yes, Dad. Now, that can be very, very helpful and very constructive. Now, that's that first word. Now, God will do the same thing spiritually to us. Now, if you don't respond to that, we go to phase two. God's, God's not going to let you off the hook. See, you can shrug that sort of thing off. That's why it says, don't, don't faint when you are, don't despise the chastening, nor, it says, be discouraged. Don't think, oh, I'm useless, I'm no good. No, that's not the issue at all. You're wonderful. That's why he's doing it. There's a flaw in the glory of Christ that's being revealed in you and he's dealing with the flaw but he wants to keep the glory. This is a proof of maturity. It's not evidence of disapproval. Amen? You've got to get that across to your kids and you've got to get that across. The Lord wants us to get it across to anyone for whom we have spiritual responsibility. The next word is the word, it's, it's rebuke in my New King James. The Greek word is the word elenko. And it's the same word that's used, for example, in Hebrews 11.1 1, when it says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's the elenkos of things not seen. It's a word that was used in a criminal court for a prosecuting attorney to convince a jury without any doubt at all of the truth of the evidence he was presenting to them. So what God says, he says, look, if you can't respond to that one slap, then you and I better sit down together and we better reason together until you can see it the way that I can see it. And so phase two is a serious chat. So after you've given your child a smack over some issue and says, now, is that okay? Did you think it was just? And if they say yes, say, and I didn't like, okay, so it's buried, it's finished, it's forgotten, we're not going to have that sort of behavior anymore. No, that's great. That's what, now the thing's finished with. If they, if they respond in more anger towards you, you say, we better sit down and talk about this. Now, that's true with a leadership team. It's true with people in your church. Because we've got to get to the issue. It's like, it's the same, in fact, if you go into the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and it says in Isaiah um, chapter 1 and verse 18, it's, the Lord says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as wool. Though they be like crimson, they should be like snow. This is the same word. God says, look, I want you to see this my way. I don't just want to beat you into submission. I want you to agree with me that I'm doing a great job. <laughs> Amen? So the next level is the reasoning level. And the word, which I'm sure you know this, in the Greek New Testament, when it says in, in 1 John and verse Nine, if we confess our sins, then it literally means in the Greek to say the same thing. In other words, what we're saying is not, oh, I'm a terrible sinner, but I agree with God about what he thinks of what I just did or said. Like you slam the door and you walk out of the house and your God says to you, that was not a nice way to treat your wife. And you say, she deserved it. No, that's not the right answer. <laughs> you, you and God are going to have a time of reasoning together. But he says that was just anger 
and you hurt your wife, better go back and apologize. No, no, you better. See, until you can see it God's way, you can't confess your sin. Amen? Say, God, I can see it the way you can see it now. It was terrible, it was wrong, and I'm as upset about it as you are. Now you've come to true confession. Got it? And so that's this reasoning stage. And you've got to take time with your kids. If you take time, obviously you can't do it with very young children, but once they get to that sort of age where you can discuss these things, you better get into the Elenco phase of discipline. Say, look, we're going to take time about this. Dad, why can't I stay out after 10? All right, let's sit down and talk about this. See, don't just have them under the law. Have them to see it the way you see it, or rather the way God sees it, and why God's saying this about their life, until they agree with you as much as God does. Amen? Now, that'll stop the thing from being a recurring battle over certain issues of discipline. Once you've gotten to see the reason of it, then unless they are inherently rebellious, then that's normally the end of the matter. Now, tragically, some people in the church, some leaders on a team, and some children in the home, they are, there's something deeply inherently rebellious about them. And God's only got one cure for that, which is the third word, scourging. And man, that's a terrible Greek word. It, it was the word that was used to describe when people were flogged with a Roman whip with bits of bone in it until it cut the back to pieces. It, it literally means to flay or to flog. God so loved his children that if they won't respond to the chastening and if they won't respond to the, to the rebuking or to the reasoning, then he's going to flog them. How many of you... Um, oh, dear. It's gone out of my mind. I'll come back to that in a moment. And, and um, so God will literally flog his children. Jamie Buckingham. I remember no Jamie Buckingham. I used to know him well and over his desk, at his place where he typed, he had this sort of text on the wall. And it said this, it said, those whom the Lord loves, he beats the hell out of. <laughs> <laughs> he had this big text on his desk there. <laughs> he beats hell out to let heaven in. Amen? Not a bad deal. That we might become partakers of his holiness and we might actually become his righteousness. Not a bad deal, amen? And so we need to learn from God. God knows how to discipline us. Is that okay? Now let me, let me just touch this and then I, I think I, maybe I'll have to close on this. But it, Let me just see where I am. Yeah, that'll do. Let's go on to this. I want to say this next. Fathering is a constantly changing dynamic. You've got to understand that. And that's where many fathers go wrong. I had a, a wonderful family in my church, a father with six kids, and the children were all so obedient. They all loved Jesus. They were such worshippers. And, and, and if we went away, we used to go away to camp, and they'd all be doing the washing up, and they'd make their beds, and you think, this is the model father, this is the model family. But as they grew into their teens, things began to go wrong. And what amazed me was that when they went off finally to university, none of them wanted to come back home. You know why? Because he was still treating them like an eight-year-old when they were 20 years of age. 